and one of the pastors down the street at Coquitlam Alliance. Um, I thought I'd begin tonight by, uh, it seems a little loud, is it a little bit too high? Yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Um, I thought I'd begin with a psalm and uh, begin with Psalm 8. And, but I'm going to read it from uh, the, the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. So this is how Psalm 8 goes. It says, God, brilliant Lord, yours is a household name. Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout their songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods, bright with Eden's dawn light. You put us in charge of your handcrafted world, repeated to us your Genesis charge, made us lords of sheep and cattle, even animals out in the wild, birds flying, fish swimming, whales singing in the ocean deeps. God, brilliant Lord, your name echoes around the world. Today is what day? Ash Wednesday. Wow, very good. It's uh, Ash Wednesday. And uh, one of the things, so, so see, uh, first day on a journey um, in the church calendar called Lent, journey towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And on Ash Wednesday, generally people in more high church traditions uh, will go to an Ash Wednesday service and they'll get uh, marked, maybe on the forehead, unless they have to go to work, on their hand, um, usually with a little mark of, an a of ash in a cross. And one of the things that Ash Wednesday reminds us of, why do we do Ash Wednesday, is, is very counter-modern culture. Because when you do Ash Wednesday, when you remember Ash Wednesday, you're remembering that at the end of the day, you're really dust, right? That our days are numbered, and there will come a day where you and I, our bodies will get older, and we will die. And I'll tell you, in a culture which is characterized as a therapeutic age, and a therapeutic age or a therapeutic culture, it's... Um, Highest values are to avoid pain, to feel good, and to stay or at least look young forever. Talk about a countercultural act is observing Ash Wednesday. Because in Ash Wednesday, we remember, as the psalmist says, when I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Because we really are creation, not the creator. And that's what Ash Wednesday reminds us of. So I just wanted to kind of lay that out as we go into our exploration of modernity. Um, to remember that, uh, but for the grace of God, we are, <laughs> we are dust, right? So on that happy note, let's pray. 
God of all grace, we thank you for your grace. For though we are dust and ashes, though we're here for a little while and then the wind blows and we're gone, you have given us dignity and value because we are made in your image. You've given us life. And you have revealed yourself to us. And you have reconciled us to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. To the point that we can call you the living God of the universe, our Creator. We can call you Father. And you look at us and you call us daughter. You call us son. Lord, our lives only have meaning insofar as they are connected to you. And so we come before you tonight and we say, yes, but for you we are toast, we are ashes, we are nothing. Yet because of you, we are adopted sons and daughters. So thank you. May tonight what we look at, uh, may, uh, as an act of worship, may we lean in with our minds and with our hearts. And so we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to, tonight, we're, uh, we're looking at slaves to society, how the modern world messes us up, basically, how it tempts us to live as if God does not exist. And so what I'd like to do, just to get things started, is have you just talk among yourselves, very easy questions, no math, um, and maybe just primarily the first question. I want you to think about your own heritage your family maybe coming to faith in Christianity, if that's where you're at, your own conditions growing up, things that you see, your whole experience, your whole background, and how has that shaped how you see the world? You don't have to go through your whole story, but maybe one or two things, <laughs> or over here all night, one or two things that have shaped how you see the world, okay? So just maybe in groups of two or three, just share for a moment one or two things about uh, your life, who you are, that shapes how you see the world. Could be your age, could be your ethnicity, could be your um, national background, it could be all sorts of things. So go, and we'll reconvene in a couple of minutes.
Okay, maybe one more minute. Okay, well, let's gather in. Now, the reason why I ask you this question is because stories shape our lives. Our lives are shaped by stories. Um, I grew up as a uh, Toronto Maple Police fan, so I'm acquainted with suffering from a very young age, right? So, I mean, that's, that's how my story uh, shapes my life, so... <laughs> I know what it means to, to live in hope, unseen hope. Um, but all of us are shaped by stories. All of us have experiences, um, stories that shape who we are today. And one of my favorite quotations that I tend to quote as much as I can is this one by philosopher Alistair McIntyre who says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? So the stories that shape your life are very important because they shape the reality of your life. And often we are shaped by stories and these stories shape how we live our lives. But we're not even always aware of these stories. We're not even, we don't even fully realize the stories that are shaping our lives. But that's important because these stories shape how we make decisions in our lives. Now, the most powerful influences over our lives stem um, from ways of thinking that come out of our culture. In fact, we are surrounded by all sorts of narratives, stories that are telling you, shaping you, in terms of saying, this is how you should live. This is what you should value. This is what you should like. This is what you should dislike. We are surrounded, probably more so than any other time in history, we're surrounded with a gazillion stories that are competing for your attention, that are competing to shape your life. And, and the reality is, is that most of us, we make decisions of what to do and what we say is good, what we say is wrong. Um, we don't always think it through. And so, like, I don't know, I've never met a person who came up to me and said, you know what, David, I've thought carefully, I have decided to be a deconstructionist, <laughs> right? I've been reading a little bit of Foucault lately, and, uh, and, and you know, I, I've decided to embrace the philosophy of existentialism. Nobody's ever said that to me. But I've had many people come up to me and I've said something and saying, hey, hey well, who am I to say what's true? You have your truth, I have my truth, we're all cool, right? Have you ever heard people say that? Okay, well, that's deconstructionism. People don't know that. People haven't actually read the philosophy. But these are stories that permeate our culture and that affect us and infect us. And so we need to realize that they're not ones that we think ourselves into, but we kind of experience our ways into they're like the air we breathe. And so we, are, we live in a culture where there's lots of stories floating around. Let me just show you a few of these. Okay. Uh, I keep, uh, as you say, I love, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. What does this story tell us? 
Oh, oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's sad. It's what Toronto Maple Leaf fans used to do. We have a little bit of hope, but not much. Um, but the narrative that's being told is that it's pretty futile to be a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. Okay. How about this story? What are these stories? What, what's this story telling you? What's the story behind this advertisement? This is a real advertisement. What's the assumptions? What are some of the assumptions behind this? What's that? That yeah, well there yeah, that's that's who's waiting for you guys, right? <laughs> what else is said is that there there are singles, and then there's. Elite singles. This ain't no plenty of fish website, right? This is elite singles. Well, and read it. It says, it stands to reason that finding a suitable partner is far more effective when you're searching in the right place. That's why elite singles has focused on attracting Canada's best singles. The best singles, not the lousy singles, right? Interesting. So what does it mean to be the best? Get this. Interesting. And? And? Educated, professionals seeking long-term relationship. This is what constitutes a quality person. All right, There's a whole story in that one single ad, isn't there? All these assumptions, and these are things that we see all the time, but they are loaded with meaning. Okay, here's one. I'll have to read it because it's pretty small print. Okay, you're a young, poor, unemployed, undereducated person living in the Western world. You have no future of any significance. You're undervalued, not respected, not really wanted. There's no meaning to your life. Nobody cares who you are, what you think, what you do. You're irrelevant to society. This is evil. It's not you. It's society. You live in an evil society. You're good. They're bad. Why? Because they're not Muslim. But you can become something else. You can fight back. You can make a difference. You can be somebody. You can do something that matters. People will care. Join a noble cause to destroy the West. That's the narrative of, of ISIS. Like, people don't join ISIS because, well, you know what? That's, that's the story that's told. You're like, you know, your life is meaningless. You may as well join a noble cause to overthrow the decadent West. Okay, these stories shape how you live, decisions you make. Here's one. This is a, um, a news article about a year ago. We're in Duke University down in North Carolina. Um, there, was, there was big controversy because the church would not allow its church bells to be used on campus to call Muslims to prayer. And saying how intolerant of those Christians not to use their church building, church bells, to call Muslims to prayer. What's the story being told? What's the assumption? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just your religion thing, right? What's the big deal? It's all your God thing anyhow, so why not use your church to call Muslims because it's all hooey anyhow or it's all the same thing a god is a god is a god right yeah okay so that's the narrative that's the story that's, that's behind the story university of victoria <laughs> this is a recent ruling 
um, that it was ruled in the University of Victoria that free speech rights are not protected on university campus. So the university came out and says it's, it's, it's been decided that universities are not places that necessarily have to guard free speech. It's surprising. Because you think of all the places where you probably could have some free speech, it might be a university. Right? Re reflecting a universal ideas, different ideas, right? But that was a ruling that came out. The universities do not need to hold on to free speech. Well, science says that this is true. We live in a culture. <laughs> Did I tell you? I think I maybe shared it in a sermon. I've been here so often, so... Um, but th there, is a, um, there is a recent article saying that science shows, scientists have now shown that human beings, when they act in such a way to help not just themselves, but other human beings, that this has positive effects not only for the person doing the help, but for the person who's receiving the help. And science has just shown this that you should love your neighbor as yourself, <laughs> right? It's only been talked about for 2,000 years, but science has shown that there's some benefit. Oh, hey, maybe I should be kind to my neighbor, because science says. Because we live in a culture, and we're going to get to this in two weeks, where science has all the credit, okay? So my, my point is simply this, is that stories shape how we see the world. <clears throat> you and I, we, um, we're, we're affected by stories, and these stories shape a number of things. The story shapes our identity, how we see ourselves, um, how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see the world. Um, so just as an example, if, if you're surrounded with a story or if you're influenced by a story that tells you that what you see in the world is all you get, kind of a materialist understanding of the world, there's no God, it's just matter. We're just a bunch of, you know, firing neurons. That's all we are. So with a materialist perspective, if that's the story that you live in, how will that affect your identity? Well, if all you are is a bunch of firing neurons, if, that's, if all you are is matter, then on what basis do you have value and on what basis do you have rights? I mean, you can't talk about human rights without invoking the imago Dei, the image of God. The idea of human rights in the world can be traced to a biblical understanding of the image of God. Okay, so you jettison that. All you are is a bunch of firing neurons. Okay. So on what basis do you have value? What's that? What you have to offer. Okay, so your value is now has to be based on, in, in many ways, your usefulness to society. Okay, good. Yeah, maybe a group moral idea that's socially created. Yeah. But at, when push comes to shove, if you're operating within a materialist mindset, 
a materialist worldview, even that's going to be hard-pressed, you will probably only be able to talk about value in relationship to usefulness, to, to whether or not you're contributing to a greater whole, to posterity, or those sorts of things. Okay. All right. So what happens when you're no longer useful? Yeah. That's where euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide comes in. Because when you get old, what reason is there, what possible reason is there for keeping you alive? You're expensive to the system. You're no longer working. The kids are waiting for their inheritance. <laughs> right? And so, in some countries in Northern Europe, if you're a senior citizen, you do not want to get sick and go to the hospital. Because it's likely you're not going to come out. Right? Because if you live in a society where your value is based on usefulness and you're no longer useful, and you have nothing else to draw from, then, then why should you not kill someone who's no longer useful? And that's why there's pretty um, advanced euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide laws in Denmark in the Netherlands, where these euthanasia laws also extend to kids who are under 12. That, in the state of Oregon, when you're 15, you need your parents' permission to get a tattoo, but you do not need your parents' permission to have euthanasia, like, to, to, to be killed. Do you know that? So all, all I'm saying is that these ideas, the stories, shape your identity. They also shape your convictions. Um, yeah. They shape our ethics in terms of what we think are right, what, what is right and what is wrong. They shape our actions. Our actions do not take place in a vacuum, nor are they simply well-thought-out, articulate worldviews. Very few people have an art, a thought-out, articulate worldview. Um, but our desire in all this is somehow, from a Christian perspective, that there would be some kind of connection between the story we hold to be true and the way we live, right? So let me ask you this. This is one of the ways you can tell if, if, if your story matches your actions. If you won $8 million tonight, what would you do? Only in the West could we ever have this as a hypothetical, real, realistic thing to happen, right? They don't have these conversations in some places in Africa. Um, so you win $8 million, what would you do? No, we're in a church. Oh, I'd give it away, of course. Um, <laughs> we know the right answer. But what I want you to think about is your first impulse, what you're going to do with $8 million, because that says a lot about what stories shape your life. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confess what you do with it, but I think, I think that's a very interesting question. Now, one of the things we're going to talk about is this. We're going to talk about the modern world. We live in the modern world. And there's this thing called modernity that plays a huge part in the formation of our stories. It's the most important factor that shapes our stories in the world today. 
The history of modernity is fascinating. I've taught an entire 10-week, 12-week class on the history of modernity. Um, but we don't have time to go through it tonight. But one of the characteristics of the modern world is secularization. And secularization has infected, affected every dimension of life in the West. And actually throughout a big part of the world. And so what we want to do tonight is to expose some of the hidden assumptions behind the secular world, behind modernity. And so this is kind of the running thesis and assists. The hidden assumptions lying in modern institutions, traditions, and habits is actually theological. It is the assumption that God is largely irrelevant to the function of day-to-day living in the modern world. For all intents and purposes, the, the modern world promotes functional atheism. That's my big point tonight. The modern world creates functional atheism. And so what I like to do is, is, is look at this a little bit. Um, because our challenge as Christians is, is, to, uh, is to live a congruent story, right? Let's see if that goes... Yeah, so our challenge is, is to live a congruent story that the reality of Jesus Christ would reframe every aspect of our lives. And so we need to be able to see clearly, to see Jesus clearly and allow the reality of Jesus to shape how we see the world. And in order to do so, we need to recognize just how the world distorts our vision. Now, last week, I got a pair of glasses, finally. I've been putting it off. And I got a pair of glasses for, like, night driving. And I'm like, how much different? I, I can see fine. I don't need glasses. And, but then I notice at night, sometimes my eyes get a little tired, and I do turn <coughs> 50 this year. Um, and so I thought... I'll get them, but I probably won't use them because I can see just fine. So I got my glasses, and I got, Karen brought them home. And I said, oh, okay. Just, Whoa! Oh! It, it was so different. Everything was crisp. Everything had edges. Like, it was just, I could read signs. I, I just assumed that they were too distant to read, but... <laughs> All sorts of, it was like, so I mean, I was thinking about that. I mean, that's kind of what we're, we're looking at here tonight. It's just, we think we can see fine, but so much of what we see is really distorting our vision. And what was it like to, to allow the, the, the vision of Jesus to help us to see the world? So that's what we're going to be doing in our remaining time together. Because um, the minute we see Jesus we begin to look at our culture and we begin to see the narratives that shape our own culture. And so, the modern world messes us up. But the, way, the place where I want to focus tonight is, is in, in particularly in one area. The, the modern world really messes us up in terms of how we answer what I think is the most important question in human existence. And that is a question. Who am I? I think every generation has a key framing question. 
I think the framing question in our world today is who am I? Who am I? Um, as we looked at last week, if, if my identity is intimately connected to my sexual orientation, if that's who I am, then that has huge ramifications in terms of how I see myself, how I see the world, and how I see others. Right? So who am I? It's a very simple question, but it's a very difficult question to answer. But you and I cannot live unless we have some way of answering this question. And every generation has tried to answer this question, but again, I think this is a, a key question that, that forms a heart cry of many recent generations. Okay, now why is this asking this question today so different from other ages? Well, I think it's primarily because of what we went through in the 20th century. Prior to the mid-20th century, this is a little bit of history, prior to the mid-20th century, um, if you were operating in the 19th century and right up to about maybe the 19, early, early 20th century, if you were to answer the question, who am I? The answer would be pretty clear. Who am I? Well, I'm a rational being. Right? I'm a rational animal. Um, I, I, it is my freedom to pursue happiness. And as long as everybody using their own rational capacities pursues their own happiness, as long as the government gets out of the way and creates an even playing field for us to pursue happiness and to pursue our rational desires, then the result will be society will be healthy and happy too. And so the characteristic of the, mo of the early modern world was that of optimism. We have reason. We can figure out the world. Give us a problem. We can solve whatever problem we face, right? And so a lot of people thought that that's what it meant to be human. I was rational and using reason, I will make the right choice to the benefit of myself and to society. But then this happened. Right? Yeah, you can go back further to World War I. Yeah, Hiroshima happened. Auschwitz happened. Into, into 1975, the killing fields happened. And all of a sudden, we're faced with this, this, this reality that you have these countries that in many ways were very rational, very educated, um, very sophisticated, doing incredibly heinous things to one another. But hang on, I thought if we had more education, if we, if, if we thought things carefully, if, it, if, our, if our culture was more um, civilized, that we would do things that would benefit humanity, not destroy humanity. And yet, we find that in the 20th century alone, more people died violently than all people that died violently in the history of humanity prior to the 20th century put together. See, more people, just so you know, more people died under atheistic regimes in the 20th century than all the people that died violently prior to the 20th century. So next time you hear somebody say, well, religion's a cause of violence, just throw that one out there. Right? You, you give me a crusade, I'll raise you a Soviet Union, a Stalin. Right? You give me the Inquisition, I'll raise you a Pol Pot. Because anything that you see among atheistic regimes in the 20th century are just 
just horrible things that happened. But what happened in the 20th century is that it, it, it provoked a huge identity crisis. Because we thought we knew who we were. Now we don't know who we are anymore. How could we, using our reason, carry out these kind of horrors? I mean, can you confidently believe in human reason, in humanity, when you see these kind of things? How can you believe that the, the problem in our world is the lack of education when one of the most educated nations in World War II was Germany? Can you really believe that the world is inevitably progressing, moving upwards? So everything's thrown into, in, in, into question. And it's left a vacuum of, of, of meaning. It's left us with an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. And when we don't know who we are, you know what happens? When you don't know who you are, a vacuum's created. And everybody and their uncle will rush in and tell you who you are. If you don't believe me, just, just, just go through your Facebook news feed and mark down how many people are trying to tell you what reality is. Everybody's going to try to tell you. But part of our culture today is the sense that we are, we are in the midst of an identity crisis. So what I want to do tonight is just look at four characteristics of this identity crisis. And here's the first one. The first characteristic of our identity crisis that we're in today is the sense of dislocation. Now, what I mean by that is simply this, is that tradition, the past, is treated with skepticism. It creates a break from the past. So basically, one of the characteristics of our world today is simply this. Anything that took place in the past is dumb. <laughs> right? Anything that took place in the past is, oh, that's so iPhone 3GS, right? That's so... Passe. And, and you think about it. Think about every, uh, think of all these, uh, look at this guy. Some of you guys are older, right? How many of you know this song? Times they are changing. Nobody will admit it, right? How many? Some of you know it? Okay. Well, what's the theme? Do you remember the theme of the song? Yeah, because he goes on and on and on. That's right. And if somebody gets in the way, get out of it. Why? And because times are changing, right? Times are changing. So get out of the way. If you're old and you have some old ideas, you need to recognize that times are changing, right? Now, okay, so that might have been too far back for some of you, but uh, okay, let's go here then. I'll move up a little bit, right? The who? Who? Well, is their big song talking about my my generation? And what's what's the what's the big line? I hope I hope I die before I get old. Now, when they tour, they go. I hope I die before I get really, 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 really old, um, because they're they're quite old. <laughs> They've had to change the words. Um, yeah, I hope I die before I get old, right? Because anything old is kind of outdated is passe and then the the past is looked down upon now just to show you how hip and cool i am um kesha with a dollar sign i don't know she's got this song die young um that uh, some young guy told me about i've never actually heard her sing <laughs> but it's one of the characteristics that we live in right now is that things that are old are seen as useless 
and maybe impediments to progress. Okay. What's that? Well, including people. Yeah, we live in a forever young culture for sure. Now, how has this come about? There's lots of reasons, but I would tell you one of the key um, influences on this is this, is technology. Because technology, we live in a technological world, right? Technology is huge. But we think technology is neutral, but you know, technology shapes the way we think. How does technology shape the way you think? Let me hear from you. What, what are some ideas? Google gives you all the answers, right? Yeah, so in, in many ways, it, it, um, it's a thinking preventative. I was thinking about the movie Inside Out. <laughs> They're throwing away all the old phone numbers because you don't need to remember those anymore, right? <laughs> what else does technology do? Yeah. Yeah, so what is the default question of technology? Yeah, what's new? Yeah, how is the key word. Because the, the question is, how is the iPhone 6 better than the iPhone 5? Right? Well, it does this, 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 and that. Not, do we need an iPhone 6? And I like Apple, maybe we do. I, you know. Um, technology forces you to ask one question and one question, how? How does this work? How is this better? How is it worse? How will this help me? It's always a question, how? And, and, and when it's how, what it does is it shapes the way we think. It shapes the way we think that we look at everything as a problem and looking for the means to find a solution. It's a problem-based culture. We start thinking everything's a problem and what can fix it. Well, what can fix it is always going to be something newer. Right? There's a, I think Abraham Lincoln once said, he says, to a man with a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. Right? <laughs> right? Everything is how. How can I how, how, how? Now, just, a, just as an aside, we can't go into this, but I think it's a technological society that has the biggest effect on how our world understands sexuality. Because in a world sexuality, understanding of sexuality, everyone becomes a means to my end. My problem, I'm lonely. My problem, I'm, 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 um, I have these needs. How can those needs be met? Okay, through porn. Through this, through this, through this. She becomes a means for my own self-satisfaction. Right? She's too old now. Find someone else because I have a problem. And I think the way the world understands sexuality is connected to our understanding of technology. Because no longer, no longer is, is it two becoming one flesh. It's we're divorcing because we no longer love each other. She no longer makes me happy. Because she is a means to my end. Which is what technology is. It's a means to, to an end. Okay. Now it's interesting, just as an aside, but this idea that, that, um, that wisdom or that the best is yet to come, 
that, that in whatever problem we can come up with the technology, that, that the hope lies ahead of us, is actually a concept that only comes around in the last 200, 250 years. If you're in, a, in the mid, medieval ages, if you're looking for wisdom, where do you look? Or knowledge. It's always the past. It's always found in the past. But that changes with the Industrial Revolution. It's interesting. That's, a, that's an aside. But, um, but let me ask you this. If we live in a world that places very little value on the past, George Orwell once wrote, the quick, quickest way to destroy a people is to obliterate their understanding of history. If we forget the past, if we don't care about the past, if we don't care where we've come from, um, let me ask you this. What possible value would the life, death, and resurrection of a person that took place oh, 2,000 years ago have for my life today? So how do you proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to a culture that has historical amnesia or just doesn't care about anything? Anything that took place in the past is necessarily inferior. How do you talk about Jesus to a culture that thinks that anything's old is irrelevant? And you know, like, when, when, have you ever had that experience when, you, when you've shared or have you talked to people about Jesus or like, oh, that's like so, you know, how can you know, something that took place so long ago have anything to do with my life today? You go to church. I mean, church, because it's old. That's part of our, the characteristic of the modern world. It says, um, Oz Guinness calls, he says, we've become not homo sapien, but homo up to datum, right? Everything needs to be up to date, right? Okay, so that's the first characteristic of the identity crisis now i've given you the crisis what's the response from a christian perspective i'm not just going to leave you in a crisis don't worry what's the christian response was well, to be located in the biblical story as christians we are located we are rooted in a story with a past present and future a beginning middle and end and it is the story of scripture that makes ultimate sense of reality so the question i have for you is do you know the Word of God? Because the Word of God is our story. And I think I've shared this before, but um, if you don't know the Word of God, you, do, you will not know how to live today. Right? Remember I said stories. We will not know what to do unless, we're, unless we know which story or stories we are part of. So the Bible is a story of all stories. That's what J.R.R. Tolkien calls it. The story of all stories. And so unless you know the story of Scripture, how are you going to navigate your way in the world today when that is the story that needs to shape your very life? That is why we need to be men and women of the book and to know the Word of God. If we don't, we're toast. We're absolute toast. If, if you don't know the Word of God and somebody says, well, you know what, if they love each other, they should be able to do whatever they want, and who am I to say? And you're like, yeah, I guess so. Oh, you know what, they're suffering, they're getting old, and they're not very useful to society anymore. Why shouldn't we just kill them? I don't know. Yeah, good point. Right? That's why we need to be rooted and grounded in God's Word. 
That's the story that needs to shape our life. And so I just want to encourage you as followers of Jesus Christ, if you're followers of Jesus Christ, become men and women of the book because that's, that's the story that needs to shape our lives. Okay? Okay, what's the second identity crisis? The second identity crisis is invention. Right? So the first one is dislocation. The past is bad. The second identity crisis is invention. And so we live in a culture where people are constantly inventing themselves. Who are you? Hey, you are who you want to be. Right? Okay, I shouldn't pick on her. I will. She's my niece. Um, So my nieces, they're... um, I mean, they're, they're pretty girls, right? They're in their 20s, and, and they do a lot of selfies, right? <laughs> and so one of my nieces just, you know, took this uh, selfie, and uh, <laughs> that's what it was, I'm, I'm just saying. And, and then she posted, she goes, life isn't about the journey that you're on, it's about creating who you want to be. <laughs> um, and so I just said, hey, uh, I said, hey, that, that's a nice picture. <laughs> I said, I'm not so sure about the sentiment, if that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, well, my goodness. All hell came down on me, right? How dare you? Not from her, but from all, all of her friends and classmates. Oh, you know, how dare you oppress her? How dare you, you know, question you know, who you should become and who you can invent yourself to be? I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Because I stepped on something pretty big. We live in a world that says, you can be who you want to be. Don't you let anybody tell you that you cannot become the person that you will create yourself to be. And on one hand, it's like, okay, yeah, there's some empowerment to that. I get that. But on the other hand, man, does that not sound a little bit like consumerism, which is an integral part of modernity? You can buy whatever you want to be, right? You can, you can become the person you want to be. And so it, part of the culture of, of modernity is that our identities are constantly being invented. And images are being projected to, to try to convey who we kind of think we want to be. I remember Steve Turner, um, who was... Um, He's, a, he's a, a writer in a lot of rock bands from the uh, 70s and that. He met David Bowie. And uh, David Bowie, um, when he met him, David Bowie was just this ordinary guy with jeans and kind of awkward and kind of geeky and, uh, you know, kind of longer hair, straggly hair. And, and he met him. And he said, and he's a guy, you know, I like to be an artist. I like to sing and stuff like that. And a year goes by. And he was in London again, so he thought he'd call on David Bowie, see how things were going. Well, Bowie was, was, had transformed himself. He was a Ziggy Stardust, and the whole, the whole look was all invented in a year. The new name, the new everything, right? What was it? Davy Jones, I think, was his original name. But because the monkeys had Davy Jones, he changed it to David Bowie. It's true. Um, but there we live in a culture, part of modernity is we are constantly manufacturing our identity. And here's, here's the challenge, is that we have this desire to invent a unique identity, right? But the problem is, if we're all trying to invent the same unique identity, it's not unique, right? And where you do find uniqueness, 
what happens? Well, here's a unique identity. Right? You guys know who he is? Yeah, Che Guevara. You know, he's a Marxist, stick it to the man, anti-establishment. How many T-shirts have you seen kids wearing of Che Guevara? Like if there's a guy who's been kind of <laughs> being brought into the whole consumerist uh, vision is Che Guevara, right? Um, we, I was watching with my daughters. Um, we were at the movie theater, and uh, we were watching an, an, uh, a commercial for Converse shoes. Which, and so it has all these people wearing Converse, playing soccer, you know, going to parties, making out, and doing all sorts of things. And, and it's kind of portraying this world. And it's just saying, you know, this world, I think the tagline was, be different, be diverse. And before I got to the final line, I yelled out in the theater, yeah, everybody buy the same shoe. <laughs> right? And so my girls, they laughed. And so did a couple. Because that's a lie. You know, be unique, be different, buy the same thing. And, but that's part of the lie in our culture. And, and, and it's in a consumer culture, which is part of modernity, Large corporations are heavily invested in linking two things together. One is acquisition, what you buy, with personhood, who you are. And, and what we think is freedom of choice really is not freedom of choice. We're told, hey, man, you're free. Free to buy every, whatever you want. You can, get, you can get a yellow iPhone 6 or you can get a red iPhone 6. I mean, the, but the choice is yours because, man, it's all about choice. Well, there's no choice. But that's a lie that we live in, right? And, and part of the challenge is if you're, if you're inventing yourself and you're inventing yourself and you're inventing yourself, you don't know who you are. But the other thing that you're avoiding is the reality of suffering. What do you do with suffering in your life? How do you understand suffering? Suffering is bad. So you, get, you, you invent yourself to escape the suffering. Constantly invent yourself and you're trying to stay one step ahead of of suffering. The problem is, I mean, if suffering can be transformative and redemptive and can actually help you understand yourself, you're constantly running ahead of the very thing that can help you know who you are, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so invention is the second one. So what is a Christian response to invention? Well, the Christian response is this is givenness. This, is, uh, this word is absolutely key. Christianity says this, who we are always precedes what we do. So before you did a single thing, you were deeply loved and made with dignity and value in your mother's womb. You haven't even done anything. And you're loved. And you have dignity. And you have value. And so my fundamental, my starting point, my fundamental dignity is not dependent on what I do, but in the givenness of the fact that I have been created in the image of God. And so when we come to Jesus, you and I don't need to strive to acquire a self we come as we are, right? We come as we are because being precedes doing. 
And you and I can receive what has been given to me with gratitude and peace. And so this whole idea of givenness, saying, you know what? And this gets back to our conversation last week, and I've said this to some people. Yes, you may feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. But the solution is not to invent yourself through a costly operation that's going to transform you into a woman. But the way forward is to recognize that there's a givenness to your body. And there's probably going to be tension in your life. But you live within the givenness, recognizing that this is how God has created you. Um, and there's going to be tension but you navigate your life with what God has given you in your physical body. We live in, in a culture where everybody is constantly pursuing something new, constantly reinventing themselves. And so one of the characteristics of the modern world, we should not be surprised, is a sense of restlessness and anxiety. The WHO says the number two, the, I think it's the number two ailment in the world is anxiety. I think anxiety is number two. Here's a third one. It's kind of connected to the last one, but it's slightly different. And that's fluidity. And that's the idea that our identities, not, we're not just inventing them, but actually our identities are constantly changing. And they're changing at a rapid rate. And so the question people are asking is, who am I now? Who am I now? And what this produces is this deep sense of insecurity and lostness and also this tendency to become like a chameleon, to try to take on whatever image that seems to be popular around us. But it's characterized by a sense of instability. And so our identities are not static they're constantly changing. And so if you ask people, who are you? They have no idea who they are. I meet so many men that when push comes to shove, they have no clue who they are. They just have no idea who they are. And it's because this, part of it is because we're living in a world where Part of the modern world is we're always asking the question, who am I? Who am I? And we're trying to find ourselves. I remember talking to this one girl, and she was saying, well, this is who I am. We were talking about, it was a thing on sexuality, and she says, um, she said, I'm straight. She goes, I'm straight now, but who I am now may not be who I am next year. Because my identity is constantly changing, constantly changing. And I think there's a bit of, that's the influence of modernity, but I think it's also an influence of Eastern philosophy upon the West as well. Where in Eastern, Eastern religion, our, our uh, identity is, is never the same. It's, it's constantly changing. But what it does is it just creates a sense of uh, anxiety. You, uh, um, James Houston says, we go around floating around like um, Halloween costumes and we think we can pick and choose the ones we're going to wear today. And we have this depleted sense of self. And I find it crazy that we say to, we, as teachers, we'll say to kids, it's up to you to decide who you are. 
Now, I understand the sentiment. They want to empower. But no human being can bear the weight of a soul. Right? Only God can bear the weight of our soul. And here we are telling kids who are seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, and saying, who are you? you? You tell me and I'll affirm that. You decide who you are today, and that may be somebody who you're, somebody else a year from now. And the pressure that we put on kids, the responsibility that we put on kids to define themselves it kills them. And, and a lot of kids, they, they, they just get paralyzed. They, I don't know who I am. Don't make me answer this question. Or, okay, this is who I am. I'm unique. I'm unique. But hey, there's somebody uniquer. Right? Somebody more unique. And so you have people who are, you know, are just paralyzed. They, they don't know who they are. And yet they're told that they need to decide who they are. And that this identity that they decide who they are can easily change next year. Well, is there any wonder that so many young people are just given up? Right? Or cutting themselves. Or, 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 or numbing themselves through um, League of Legends for 24 hours. I don't know, playing some video game that, uh, that just kind of helps them check out. Right? I think that, that's a whole other thing. I think the video game industry is also a reflection of this because you can actually hide and become someone else for long periods of time. And, as, as in, and we know about stories of men in their 30s. I mean, the, the, the people buying the video games are usually those in their late 20s and early 30s, often men. And the video game industry is larger way larger than the movie, music, and TV industry combined. Do you know that? So how do we respond to this? What's the Christian response to this sense of fluidity? I, my identity is constantly changing. Well, the solution is here, is we find our identity, who I am, in Jesus' I am. Because from a Christian perspective, we affirm that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. He is faithful in every aspect of our lives. Jesus is constant. And when our lives are rooted in him, only then do we know who we are. You, that's, that's the Christian truth. We only know who we are insofar as we die to Christ. Right? And you know what? When our identity is in Christ, we can safely say, you know what? This is some areas of my life I need to change. And we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be anxious because we know that our lives are rooted and grounded in Christ. And what a foundation upon which to explore life. But if you have no mooring, well, any change, you're, just, you're, you're being tossed back and forth by the waves. And that's the characteristic of our culture, isn't it? Here's the last point. Here's a, the last characteristic. Uh, I've come up with about four different ways of expressing this. I'm going to call it tonight caged. <laughs> it's probably different than in your notes. Uh, I think, what do I have in your notes? Private zoo factor or constraint? Or <laughs> Private zoo factor. Yeah, it works too. Um, 
it's just an awkward private zoo factor. So one of the characteristics of, of the modern world is it's, it's fascinating. But we live in a world where infinite choice at a personal level is held together by conformity at the public level. And so one of the characteristics of the modern world is that there's a division between what is public and what is private. Privately, it's like, hey, hey man, like do what, be who you want to be. Invent yourself. You could choose from all different kinds of types of Nike apparel. Choose one. Exercise that freedom. Knock yourself out. Be who you want to be. Invent yourself. Transform yourself. All these things. But hey, 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 hey. On a public level, you, you don't be making waves. And so there's, there's, this, there's this disconnect between the public and the private. So on one hand, we can be who we want to be and we can have all sorts of um, identity, but in public, I cannot say any other definitive statement other than I should have the freedom to make... <laughs> well, what's the only thing that you can say publicly? I have the freedom not to offend you. <laughs> the highest virtue in our culture is tolerance. But not tolerance properly understood. Tolerance, you have different ideas. We, we have different ideas, but I respect you as a human being. That's cool. That's what tolerance is. Tolerance today is something different, is that I cannot say anything that you would disagree with because that might make you feel uncomfortable. And so one of the characters of, of, of the modern world is... It's surprising. Um, there's pretty strong conformity in our culture. You, if you don't believe me, just try to stand out. Just try to say, you know what, Jesus is the only way to God. Any other way you are dead ends and blind alleys. You say that at your next board meeting, whatever work you're doing. Derwin could get away with it, but anybody else, <laughs> right? <laughs> and even then, no, honey. No, can you imagine going, if, if, let's say you work for Ford. You work for the Ford Motor Company, and, and at, at Ford you just say, you know what, I think one of the things we should do is we need to make sure that we, we cut down the amount of profit we're making. Because we should take some of that profit, and we should certainly put that towards helping people with low incomes, um, be able to buy cars. We need to make sure that we're not constantly upselling, but be very honest, very clear, because this honors Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord of the Ford industry. He's the Lord over all things. How long are you going to last in that board meeting? <laughs> you, get, you get laughed right out. Why? Because you, 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 you can't say those things. There's certain things you can say. You can say things that, well, you know, everyone has a right to do whatever they want. Oh, good. Well, I believe that Jesus is the only way. I'm no, no, no. Not that. Not, not, not to the point that you're excluding or make me uncomfortable. So let's just talk about general themes, general ideas, but we don't actually live them out. All you're left with is the sense, the original word I had is constraint, is you cannot speak what you want to speak. 
And yet on the private level, you can do whatever you want. And so what has happened in the, public, in, in, in the modern world is that there's a tearing between the public and the private life. Now here, this is key. One of the effects of modernity is that it forces more and more the things that really, really matter into the private realm. And this is what Oz Guinness calls the private zoo factor. Because we believe, from a Christian perspective, we believe that the, the, the news of Jesus Christ is the most explosive, life-transforming, important news that the world could ever hear. It changes lives. It, it brings the dead alive. It is the only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. It defeats death. And in him, our lives will only work. Right? Okay. We are told that we can talk about those things for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Can you talk about that at work? No. Can you talk about it at the gym? Yeah, it's kind of awkward. So we're told that the most explosive, incredibly wild, untamed truth can only be expressed as a private opinion between the hours of 9, you guys, 9 o'clock now? And 9 o'clock and 10.15. That's why it's called a private zoo. It's, it's something that should be wild is now behind bars. It's now caged. And the rest of the week, the rest of the week when you're at school and all those things, the rest of the week, Jesus has no, you, he cannot, it doesn't have any role. And so that's why I say the part of the modern world, what it does, it doesn't say that God doesn't exist. It says, yeah, God exists. But hey, man, that's your private, personal, 9 to 10, 15 type time to talk about those sorts of things. But the real world, Jesus has no, has no role. And so what the modern world does is it eclipses God. And Jesus may be real, but he has been so tamed and privatized that the most you can say is, well, to me, I think Jesus is important. Well, that's cool for you. That's fine. But hey, let's get back to our meeting. Right? Well, this is a problem. It's a problem for a number of reasons. One is we believe what Abraham Kuyper says, that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine! Right? Is what area of life does Jesus not intersect? He intersects all of life. So that's, that's one problem. Secondly, the church is not a private institution. We talked about that last week. The church bridges private and public. It, it, it's, it sits on the boundary. Uh, but I'll tell you, all the pressure, political pressure and every, from everywhere, is to privatize Christianity. And if you want to speak in the public square, you have to check your faith at the door. If you want to go to the municipal government and bring up an issue, can you bring up Jesus? No. Because we're told in the, in the public sphere, especially in the political sphere, um, that the political sphere is neutral. 
And so if, if you start talking about Jesus as the whole church-state problem, and so you need to realize is that the state is neutral and you can have your private beliefs down here. And, you know, we'll just talk. You, you don't have to bring religion in because not everything has to do with right and wrong. We can just talk about normal things. But is that true? Let me ask you a simple question. Some of you live on quiet streets, right? How many of you live on a quiet, fairly quiet street? Okay. What if there's a big pothole on your street? What can you do? What's that? Yeah, call, yeah, call the city. And, I mean, so the, the whole issue of, of filling in a simple pothole, you would think, okay, Jesus really should not really have much role in that. Okay. So you want to fill up the pothole. What, what are some uh, issues that are going to come up? Who's going to pay for it? It's in front of your house. Should you pay for it? No, that's what my taxes are for. So should the whole city pay for it or just your street? I mean, it's just already we're getting to the area of ethics. Should us individual pay for it? Should the government pay for it? Should your street pay for it? Something as simple and innocuous as a pothole has ethical implications. But we're told that anything in the government, you need to check your faith at the door. But what does that say about the government? What has default in, in all public affairs then? What worldview has a default? Yeah, secular humanism. Because the government, for the most part, is secular humanistic. But it pretends to be neutral. Ah, oh, we're neutral. Yeah, not church, state. We're just going to, you know, we're just going to be the neutral government. No, no, you're not neutral. <laughs> You're coming at this from a secular humanist perspective, which is fine, but don't exclude me. And so one of our responses as, as Christians, and we need to get back to this, and I think we've lost this, is we need to get back to what is called the public square and not the naked public square. And we need to be able to say, you know what? My faith intersects with every aspect of my life. Ian Proven, who's an Old Testament scholar, he was saying, you know what, we're in Canada, we're getting very close to the point where you and I can be Christian only here. That's going to be the only place left. And even then, that's going to be tough. The Christian response is we need freedom in the public square. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all life, private and public. Now, it means respecting people from a different perspective. Right? Christians, we, and, and Christians, we need to get this, especially older Christians, is that we no longer have a privileged position in society. There was a day in the 50s we did, right? When I, went to high, when I was in public school, we did the Lord's Prayer. They even had a Bible story in my public school. Can you believe that? Um, those days are over, right? Christianity has no privileged position in Canada anymore. But we should have a voice. We have one of many voices. And so we need to be sure that um, we don't hand over to the public arena secular humanism as a default philosophy for our country. 
Does that make sense? Any pushback on that one? Okay, so well, let's wrap up. One of the things is um, this question, who am I, I think is the biggest question in our culture today. And we shouldn't be surprised that so many people are struggling over this, over who they are. And so our starting point, again, is I am who Jesus is. Our own identity gets resolved in these words, I am. We are because he is. And so I want to ask you the question, just as we leave, where do you find your identity? In where you live? In what you buy? In your job? In your home? Or do you locate your identity in the biblical story? I think that's key. So what I'd like to do is just ask you, just for a few minutes, just to talk about these two questions. Actually, maybe these three. Just before I wrap up, and we'll, we'll open it up to some questions, but this just kind of brings it, brings it home a little bit. Um, what are the messages that you're being told in, 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 in our culture today? Where do you feel these pressures in your own life? And what are some practical things you could do to help remember your identity is rooted in Christ? So just take a few minutes and talk among yourselves how you would answer. Because this is, this is application, right? How do you respond to everything that you looked at tonight? And then we'll open it up to some questions and we'll wrap up, okay? So just take, take about uh, five minutes to discuss these questions. That's okay. Yeah, we can record it. Sure, that's fine. Just last week was different. <laughs> Is that good? Yeah, that's fine.
Okay, maybe one, one more minute. Did I put homework on there? Oh, good. Gave you some homework. All right. Well, let's uh, let's bring it in. Maybe we can hear from each other. Um. Let me ask you this, if, if you would like to share. Um, in some of the things that we've been talking about, where are some of the pressures that you feel these uh, feel in your own life? Some of the things that we looked at tonight, are there um, experiences or are there places in your own life where you feel this quite acutely? <laughs> that always kills the conversation. <laughs> Anybody want to share? Oh, with your siblings, okay. In, in terms of... Um, well, I'm the weirdo. Being a Christian and, 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 exactly. and actually believe in these things. Exactly, really? yeah. yeah. So, so what, yeah. what kind of response yeah. is that? Or, or how is that, how is the pressure felt? Other than they're calling you weird. One. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, uh, well, they're just weird themselves. <laughs> um, Do, will will they shut down conversation with you? Uh, like, can you bring it up? Not included, right? They don't really shut down the conversation, but they do try to, like, like move it around and, uh, yeah, yeah. They just try to, to change it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, no. It's I, just yeah. It's awkward. Yeah, it's right? hard. Like <laughs> it is. It is awkward. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> if because we have we have a sister weekend every year. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's just times that I can't do what, what they want to do. And mm. uh, I just wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. I just wouldn't. Oh, Sharon, you're just being a stick in the mud. Yeah, well, maybe, but you know, that puking in the toilet and that headache the next day isn't a party for me, so. <laughs> and that's, that's what I tell them. They kind of, that's oh, awesome. okay. <laughs> But it is. It's, yeah, it, it's tough like that. Cause yeah. when you're with them for 72 hours. And yeah. After. Well, good on you, though. Well, well done. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Good for a long time. Yeah. Th thank yeah. You so for it is. It's it's my siblings that I think I I personally feel pressure from. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I, just on a show of how, how many of you feel that bit of pressure with family, in your faith? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a reality for, for a lot of people, yeah. Anybody else want to share? Well, my, uh, I sometimes imagine myself being in a court and charged with some offense or other, and I would ask them, well, where do you get the idea that's wrong? You tell me that all, everything, everything that you invent is just your invention, and so your sense of my being wrong it's just your invention, so how can you charge me with something like that? 
you don't believe in truth. Truth is not something you can identify and, and fix. So where is the truth in what you're charging me with? Hmm. And uh, everything is allowed. There are no rules in your society, in your worldview. Hmm. So what, are you, what am I doing here? Yeah, no, that's good. And it's interesting, um, like we live in a culture today, I mean, even though we're imbued with modernity, um, we live in a culture today that where people still talk about truth, still talk about justice, still talk about what is fair, what is good, what is right, what is beautiful. Uh, unless you push it a little bit, and then it's like, well, then it gets a little messy. Part of the challenge we live in right now is that we live in the shadow of a Christian culture. And so w- w- there's still residue of a Christian culture in Canada. But as one of my professors one put, once put it, he says, a shadow casts no shadow. And so where the challenge will be is, is the next generation. Because right now we still, we're still kind of using the language of a previous generation. We're still uh, borrowing some of the, uh, the ideas from a previous generation. But for one generation to come, a shadow casts no shadow. And that's where it gets scary. Anybody else want to share? Any pressure point or over here? I think one of the areas where I feel it most is in the, I haven't worked for four years. And when you meet people and you talk to them, the very first thing they ask you is, what do you do? Mm. And I just feel like I don't do anything. And that has shaken the core of my identity, shaken me to my core, not having my career as something where I realized how much of my identity was found in my career. And to not have that for a time has been really difficult. And it's awkward everywhere, even in the church. It's just as awkward here as it is outside of the church. Um, Mm -hmm. Because what do you say to someone when they say, I don't work how do you respond to that? Yeah. You know? So yeah, well, that's shaking me pretty deeply. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that would be a challenge. Yeah, we live in a yeah, especially for guys. You know, what do you do? Yeah, it's it's so deep. Anybody else? Stephen. Oh. Uh, this is actually just a comment. Um, mm. You just mentioned a second ago that people like to talk in concepts until you push them for more information, then they kind of back off. And um, I have a friend who uh, does that very well. He pushes people for more information, and he'll challenge you if you say something to back it up and to try to get down to the core of what you're actually trying to say. Mm. And uh, I didn't until tonight, until you said that, I realized that um, I've, I work in an industry where most people know each other, whether you work at the same studio or not, and uh, I've discovered that most people really dislike him, really, really dislike him, and I had no idea why, because I think he's a really great guy, Hmm. and I think that that's actually the reason why, is because too many people are put off by having to back up what they say by digging in and figuring out what it is they're actually trying to to support or what they're trying to claim. Yeah. 
interesting. Yeah, no, it's very, that's a great comment, yeah. Wow. I remember your industry, too. We were talking in the summer, yeah. Um, anybody, so in terms of, does somebody else want to add something or no? Um, in terms of how we can respond to this, what are some practical things that you think you can do to help root yourself in your identity in Christ? What are some ideas? Yes, yeah, studying the, the scripture, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's that? Having classes like this? Yes. Did everybody hear that? No. <laughs> Being in community, absolutely. Because you need people every week to tell you you're not crazy. You really do. Because sometimes as Christians, you're just like, or, or at least we're all crazy, right? <laughs> if we're going to go down, we're all going down together, right? community yeah it is important because the the evil one's strategy and it's um it's interesting Oz Guinness has actually written one of the the best books in unpacking in unpacking the nature of modernity and his book used to be called the gravedigger file now it's called the last christian on earth and uh, it's a fascinating book and he kind of writes it like a spy novel he doesn't really succeed in doing it but he's trying to be creative um <laughs> but there's one part where, where um, he says the, the strategy of the evil one is to isolate Christians. Because if I'm isolated, if I say, you know what, as a Christian, you know, I don't really need to go to church because I am the church and I can, I can be the church <laughs> in front of the computer and with, you know, I don't need to go there. I can just be in communion on the internet. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, could, be, it could be a tough experience. <laughs> so there's a reason why they're safe behind a computer screen. But the problem is, if, you are, if your church is done within the context of just you and maybe, and, and it's impersonal, and it's easier and easier to do so. And I'm, I'm always pushing back in our church. You know, we need to be able to minister to people online. And, we, and I'm like, man, I don't want to do that. Because it's just this, this depersonalizing effect of modernity that I want to push up against. Um, you know, the whole social media uh, world. But the evil one's strategy is for you to get increasingly isolated. And when you're by yourself, and it's you and Jesus, the question will come in your mind, am I just crazy? Have I just been making this up? And when you get to that place, when you feel, this is where Guinness's book title, when you feel that you are the last Christian on earth, then you're done. He's got you. And so that is where, even though, again, I know church cannot be, church can be messy, um, that's the importance of the messy community. Um, it is messy, but we need each other. Um, otherwise, when we're on our own, and I've just seen—I've seen this as a pastor, Derwin. You've probably seen this too. When people check out a church or stop coming to church and saying, "I'll do church," I've been watching things online. I've been—they're do done. They're, they're done spiritually. They—they they walk away. 
I can almost guarantee it. Because I'm the last Christian on earth. Maybe I'm wrong. I've just seen that. It is. Well, it's interesting. Like, people who walk away from their faith. Now, let's not get into Calvin and all that sort of thing. But if they walk away from, 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 from Christianity, um, nobody says, you know what? I'm done. It's that, oh, I missed it. Oh, I missed it. Oh, I'll just watch. I'll just... And it's always a slow fade. And I know guys who are elders, who are alive to God, who have nothing to do with the church today. And, and when you ask them, what, what was that? Oh, that was just my religious phase. And they were like, at least from my perspective, I thought they were on fire, but they weren't. It's interesting, yeah. So prayer, attentiveness to God. Yeah. Yeah, to invite him to be all to part of every aspect of your day. I think one of the things, I mean, it's, it's I mean, hey, it's from the past, which I think there's some wisdom. Um, and that is to, uh, to remember the church here. And we don't have to get all high church on it. But I think, you know, if, if you're looking at entering into the season of Lent, to use this period of time to, to do something to focus in on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And these are things that have been around for hundreds of years, and that you can, I think they, they, help, uh, they help shape the heart. Right? So I, I think there's some, some good things along the way. Any questions about tonight? What you share tonight, would you see it more in a, that this is a Canadian culture? Because when I look at the U.S., I've been following the elections, for example, and numerous candidates, when they get up to give their speech, the first thing they say is, to God be the glory. And it shocks me every time I hear that, when I hear that shared from a public mm. venue. And, and also, this is Black History Month. And the hist that history is, when I, when I lived in the States, that was a really, really big deal that we remember black history. Um, I don't see anything comparative to that in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I don't see our politicians talking about Christ publicly. So I don't know how much of what you're sharing, if there's a distinction between our cultures in mm, Canada and yeah. the U.S., yeah, no, that's a great observation. Um, I think there are distinctions, certainly, between Canada and the United States. I think um, Christianity has permeated American culture. Notice I didn't say American hearts, but permeated American culture to maybe a greater degree than it has in Canada. Uh, Canada is probably uh, further along the secular road. It's probably more closer to Europe in many ways than the United States. The United States is a strange country. Just, uh, I mean, we know it's a strange country. We're so close. But it just historically, it, it's quite a strange country because it's, it's very secular in terms of 
the effects of technology and all those things, and yet it remains uh, fairly high in the area of, of religion um, or religious affiliation, which runs up against most Western nations. So the U.S. kind of stands out in that way. I think it's connected to um, a little bit to its history. Um, the Christianity that we're seeing usually on the public level is a particular form of Christianity. I'm not sure if it's necessarily... Um, I think a lot of it's cultural language and how to disentangle what's cultural and what's, what's genuine. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to do. But I think it is part of the culture to speak that kind of language publicly, um, unlike Canada. And Black History Month, I mean, that's, uh, you have a, a country where 600,000 people died violently, 2 million people died over a period of five years, and at the center of it was the question of the slave trade. That will shape any nation. And we, in Canada, we have no clue. When I did schooling in North Carolina, um, the war of northern aggression took place last Thursday. That's what they called the Civil War. Um, it's, it's just so woven into the fabric of America, and, and we have no idea because we haven't experienced that kind of violence on our own. Very few countries have experienced that kind of violence that the U.S. did during the Civil War, and that's really shaped how it's understood race relations and all those things. It makes America fast. I, I find America fascinating, um, but it's a strange country. And it's strange, but weird, and it's okay, too. Any, anything else? Any other questions? Came out of tonight? kind of the uh, modernity and, and, and all this stuff. Are there any positives in, in today's culture and technology um, that we're seeing being used for good and, and that, that are being seen uh, to further his kingdom? Oh, that's good. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, we're sitting on chairs and technology does that, right? And we, we, <laughs> Right? You guys are watching my keynote. That's technology. So, I, you know, I'm not saying let's go back and burn everything. And, um, yeah, technology is, 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 is fascinating. And, and there's so much good that's been done through technology. Through Think of medical practices <laughs> that go on. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. So there's technology and the effects of modernity in terms of um, raising the um, um, living standards, life expectancy, just go across the board, it's, it's huge. Now, one thing I didn't talk about, which we could talk about till the cows come home, but um, is that the very... Okay, get this. The reason why there is modernity, the very um, birth of modernity, was Christianity. Christianity created the conditions for the greatest threat to Christianity to be born. That's why it's called the gravedigger file. That's why as Guinness calls it the gravedigger. Because Christianity inadvertently, unintentionally created the conditions for modernity, which is now the biggest threat to Christianity. One of the great ironies. Yeah, well, post-modernity is simply modernity... <laughs> um, it's a person, I, I say, I like to put it, it's a, it's a person inside the four walls of, of a modern house screaming that they don't like it inside the house. That's what postmodernity is. 
in some ways. Um, but that's one of the ironies, is that it's Christianity that gave rise to modernity. Now, we could talk about this, and I'd love to. I'm teaching a whole class on science and faith, and, and we walk through some of this. But one of the things we need to do as Christians is we need to recognize the impact that ideas have upon us. See, modernity is, we're like fish in a bowl. We don't even aware. There's the water around us. We're not even aware of it. And I think once we're aware of it, then we can start to say, all right, how can we respond to this? And I think some of the things, what does modernity do? Creates anxiety, creates fear, dislocates yourself, um, says the past is useless. I think we need to immerse ourselves in the past. I think we need to carve out solitude and silence. Those are two things that modernity hates, right? We need to slow down. Modernity is all about, right? We need to ask ourselves why instead of how. And those are things that we can do, I think, are acts of response to the effects of modernity. Um, this is community. If, if, you, if, if modernity is all about how, right? It's all about how is this better? How is it? One thing that's lost in modernity is friendship. Because how is friendship helpful? It's not. It's not. <laughs> like there's no use. If, if, if friendship becomes useful, then it's no longer a friend. You all have had friends like that, Right? when all of a sudden it's like you're friends with me because I'm useful or I'm friends with you because you're useful, it's no longer friendship. So I think that one of the best counter-modernity measures you can do is enter into useless friendship. <laughs> right? And just say we're going to hang out and do nothing and waste time. Eh? Think about wasting time compared to what modernity is efficiency. Well, I'm going to waste time. I'm just going to stare at this lake with my friend and maybe fish, right? I was going to add there, friendship is the one sphere. Once you have the personal trust of somebody, even in this modern world, that is the one sphere. When you, are, when you know and are known, you have the freedom to answer the heavy questions or even to ask them if you ask them gently enough that can lead to real conversations. So I, I don't know that that the right to be a Christian outside your brain is actually going away. You just have to be careful and cultivate it wherever you can. Yeah, yeah, you may have to do it in secret or do it in, in, your, in your wonderful... Uh, I know. <laughs> I, I was thinking of, of, of your men's retreats, you know, all the secret things that go on there. Yeah. <laughs> Which I was privy to last year, so... Uh, Ritualistic. So. Good. Anything else? So next week we're going to look at... Um, are there many roads to God? How do I put it? Uh, don't all religions lead to God? That's what we're going to look at next week. And then the final week will be on science and faith. Do I have to choose? Oh, that's going to be fun. So it will be, it will, honestly. <laughs> do you want to pray to wrap things up? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, uh, we uh, thank you tonight for stretching our thinking God, and we want to have minds that are transformed and renewed in, uh, according to your story, the, the greater story of Christ and who he is and what he means for our world, God. And so would you continue to shape us? We, we ask you to challenge uh, those parts of our lives, our worldview that may just line up with the world and we're not even aware of it. And where you want to shift that, you want to challenge that, you want to uh, maybe even have a paradigm shift for us, and uh, that we might live more counterculturally, 
and we might uh, be great ambassadors of the goodness of God and, uh, and the good news of Jesus, Lord. So uh, these are challenging days in which to live and, and to be a Christ follower. Give us wisdom. Help us to uh, uh, practice those things we, de- we described tonight, uh, those rhythms of life that would orientate us towards you and towards uh, living holy. And, uh, and so we pray, uh, lead us, God, uh, even in these days to come. We ask all these things. We give you thanks for David's uh, words tonight. Continue to, to strengthen him and bless him in his uh, uh, time here with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.